Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at High Rock. Uh, so 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 is awkward, right? Um, perhaps some of you are feeling a little uncomfortable this morning. This is the word of the Lord, right? Like, thanks be to God. Uh, we are going to close out our series this uh, morning on awkward passages of the Bible. And we are going to talk about this passage this morning. And we are going to talk about the role that God intends to have for women in his church my hope this morning is that we can lay out some of the ways to think about this passage and others like it so that we have a holistic perspective on how God designed men and women to represent him to this world. So that's the plan this morning. Today I'm particularly thankful that we always take a moment before we start to pause and to pray before we dive into God's word. So I invite you to join me in this quiet space as we prepare our hearts before the Lord, whose wisdom is infinitely more than ours. Amen. Lord, as we approach your throne this morning, we hold up to you all of the things in our lives that we bring to this room, all of the distractions, all of the anxieties, all of our relationships, all of the things that we're thinking about for tomorrow and the rest of the day and all the things that this week has brought. I pray that you would take those things and do with them what you will, and that you give us space and time to open our hearts this morning so that we might see you more clearly as we just sung. Um, help us through this difficult passage and help us understand your will in it. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So I grew up in a church that restricted the role of women in ministry. Women could not be leaders in the church I grew up in. They couldn't be pastors. They were excluded from all of the rooms where important decisions were made. And this posture was based at least in part on a plain sense reading of texts like this one from 1 Timothy. This was, it seemed, the way that God had set it up. Men and women might be equal in value and in dignity and worth, but it seemed that they were given separate roles in God's division of labor. Simply put, men teach and lead and cast vision. Women serve and support and help. So growing up, I never heard a woman preach a sermon. I watched girls shrink from the spotlight because people told them that it wasn't their place to lead. I saw families make decisions based solely on what the husband wanted because he was the spiritual leader and what he said goes. I mean, at times women did speak in church as long as they called it a testimony, right, and not a sermon. Women could teach as long as it was other women or children under the age of 18. Women sometimes even taught men, as long as a male elder was present in the room to make sure that nothing inappropriate went down. Simple enough, right? Maybe not. Because I've also heard and been in churches where a woman was teaching other women, and it was so compelling and interesting that the men wanted to hear. So they would sit in the hallway outside of the room, gathered, so they could listen as if somehow that made it more appropriate. The more that I've thought about it, and more that I've seen this played out in the real world in churches, deciding what men and women can and can't do is actually pretty complicated. And in many churches, despite efforts to emphasize equal worth and value, the underlying message is nevertheless clear. Being a female is somehow less. There are things that women are not permitted to do because they are female. For most of us, and maybe especially for women who are on the front lines, this is not an academic, theological exercise alone. This is personal and often painful. Women are well acquainted with barriers in our society. There are wage gaps and challenges to advancement. Women have their attire and their appearance scrutinized. Women are wanting to leave it being told that they are 
bossy or intimidating or other less kind words when they try. In our world, women trying to seek to realize their spiritual gifts face many obstacles. And one of those obstacles seems to be the passage that we just read this morning in 1 Timothy 2.12, where he says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let women listen quietly. So before I learned in seminary how to study scripture responsibly and contextually, I thought my choice when it came to verses like this was pretty limited. Either I swallow the whole thing at face value and accept what it has to say as I best understand it, or I just kind of ignore it completely. Just pretend that it's not there and move on. Thankfully, there's a third choice for us. When we read scripture, it is imperative for us to be wise and faithful and responsible interpreters. That we examine passages closely, that we seek to understand the original tense and how it would have been heard. And at the same time, we mustn't force the Bible to say what we think it should say, or what seems culturally tolerable. So this morning, in an attempt to read the Bible responsibly, I want to humbly share with you why our church believes that we should not only permit women to teach, but that we should encourage and empower and develop and celebrate and compensate and allow women to teach in the church and to have authority and to bear pastoral responsibilities. As with everything in life, context is king in interpretation. I remember reading the story of former football player Benjamin Watson driving through the night in the middle of New Orleans. It's middle of the night, two in the morning, he's blowing through speed limit signs, he's going through stop signs in a nice residential neighborhood. When an officer pulls him over, and the officer approaches the car, I assume, with a bunch of assumptions about this African-American man speeding through the night with his wife in a predominantly white neighborhood. But Watson quickly explained to the officer, my wife's pregnant and we're heading to the hospital. And the officer, understanding the context of that moment, ended up giving them a police escort all the way to the delivery room. So context in any situation is king. Or maybe for this morning, context is queen, right? This means we don't interpret any one scripture in isolation from its historical context, from its literary context, and from the larger context of all of scripture. So it's important to recognize also, I think, that we bring our own biases to the table in any of these conversations. We bring our assumptions, we bring our predica predications into the conversation whenever we read anything. So I think all of those things are important as we try to understand a passage like 1 Timothy 2.12. So first, I want to start with the larger context of Scripture's big story. This meta-narrative of God's will that goes across 66 complex books of Scripture. I submit to you that when it comes to the question of where do women fit into this big meta-narrative of God's kingdom, God's scripture gives a pretty consistent answer. Namely this. Against an almost exclusively patriarchal cultural background, God affirms the equality of women with men. God creates, calls, equips, and empowers men and women to lead God's people. Now, that probably seems strange, considering the passage we just read, where Paul seems to suggest that from the very start of creation, there is this pecking order between men and women. Adam first, then Eve. Men lead, and therefore, naturally, women follow. But I want to take a closer look at the biblical account of creation. So in Genesis 1, verse 27, the Bible tells us that God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So in Genesis 1, right there, men and women were created at the same time. They were given stewardship of creation together. They were told to be fruitful and multiply together. They were tasked with ruling and reigning over the earth together. Men and women 
are designed to reflect God's image best together. Then in Genesis 2, we read another account of creation. We read of Adam's rib or side being taken and creating Eve. And over the years, interpreters have used this story to argue that women are derivative from men, that they are somehow secondary or dependent or weaker than their male counterparts. Or perhaps, maybe, we've been letting our own cultural biases towards historically patriarchal societies influence how we read texts like this one. Because when you read Genesis 2 closely, after God creates this single solitary human being, we quickly discover that this human being is lonely and that it is not good for him to be alone. The point of Genesis 2 is not that men are first so that therefore they are better. The point of Genesis 2 is that a human being by themselves is lonely. And to prove this point, God parades all of the animals in front of the man to see if any of these animals can address his loneliness. And amid all the wide diversity of the animal kingdom, there is no helper just right for this lonely human. So God in Genesis 2.18 resolves to create a helper for him, a helper who is just right for the human. So helper is an interesting word, right? Like we hear the word helper and we sort of automatically think sidekick, right? Not the leader, someone inferior, someone that's coming along to help, maybe some comic relief, but not necessarily the person in charge, sidekick. But is that the case with this word in Hebrew for helper? The Hebrew word here is azer. An azer is far from a sidekick if you look at all the references in the Old Testament. An azer is a rescuer, a sustainer, someone who actively intervenes on behalf of someone else, oftentimes used in battle situations. In fact, when you look through the Psalms, when it speaks of an azer coming to the rescue, do you know who it's usually describing? It's describing God himself as the azer to come. And Azer is not a weaker partner. If anything, it's the other way around. Azer is the rescuer. By creating an Azer, God creates someone who is like the man, someone who matches the human, a true counterpart, though, someone who can sharpen and challenge and, yes, even rescue this solitary, lonely human being. No wonder when the man sees this woman, he cries out in joyful relief, and he says, at last, someone who is like me. So imagine Adam tediously naming all of the million billion animals for who knows how long it took him to do that. Finally seeing Eve and being like, dude, that is what I'm talking about. Like, why didn't you just show her to me in the first place? She is wonderfully like him, right? Without being identical to him. It's a beautiful moment. The honeymoon doesn't last. As you guys know, if you know the story, Adam and Eve disobey God and they suffer the consequences of choosing themselves and their own way over God's way. So in Genesis 3.16, God says to Eve, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Here, for the first time, we see this hierarchy between the genders. God is not describing the ideal here, but he's describing the consequence of sin and how it distorts the relationships that we have with each other. It's what happens when human beings abuse their power apart from God. But before the fall, before this moment, God's original plan was partnership and equality. Which is why, throughout the Old Testament, God not only raises up men like Abraham and Moses, but surprisingly and subversively raises up women as well. In Judges 4, we read of Deborah, who is both a prophet and a judge, which makes her God's spokesperson for the people and God's commander over the armies of Israel. In 2 Kings 22, we see that the largest spiritual renewal in Israel's history was due to the leadership and the voice of a divinely empowered and inspired woman named Huldah who advised not only King Josiah, but all of the male priests in Israel as well. 
And the list in the Old Testament goes on and on of women that God raised up. But unfortunately, by the time of Jesus, the gravitational pull of sin had led Jewish culture to new depths of patriarchy. Men lived in the public sphere, and women were confined and relegated to the private spheres of home and family. Thus, in Jewish tradition in the first century, women were not educated. Girls didn't go to school. When it came to worship, women couldn't even enter the inner courts of the temple where God's presence was residing. In courtrooms, women were considered unreliable witnesses. Nothing a woman said in a courtroom was taken seriously, so the testimony of women wasn't even permissible as evidence. I know what you saw, but I don't believe you. It doesn't matter. You're a woman. Against that backdrop, Jesus comes in, and his ministry ignites a revolution when it comes to women. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus, a rabbi himself, takes women as his disciples, the text tells us. They learn from him. Rather than teaching only in the restricted parts of the temple, like rabbis would, he taught in public arenas, accessible to all people. Even more, Jesus went out of his way to encounter, to talk with, to eat with, and even to heal women. In Luke 24, more significantly, Jesus, when he rises from the dead, appoints women to be the first witnesses to the resurrection, the first to bear testimony to the, important, the most important news in human history. It wasn't men, it was women that God chose for that moment. The men are out hiding in fear, if you remember, while women like Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women gave the very first Easter message to the world. The ones that culture dismissed as unreliable witnesses, God appoints as the very first and the most trusted witnesses to his good news. This pattern continues in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, men and women receive the Spirit of God and become prophets of the kingdom. The early church testifies over and over again that spiritual gifts are given without regard to gender. Women are called, and women are gifted, and women are empowered for all sorts of ministry positions and activities in God's church. So let's talk about Paul for a second, right? Did he just, like, not get the memo here? I mean, like, is he unaware of all the things that we've talked about and how, we've, how God's laid out Scripture? So, I mean, I can assure you that Paul, like, knew Scripture better than any of us ever will. Right? And so here are a few things that he says about women in the church. Just a few. Romans 16, Paul recognizes women like Phoebe as deacons in the church. A title that Paul used for himself, he used for Timothy, Apollos, and other key leaders in the church. A few verses later, he champions Junia, who is a woman, as outstanding among the apostles. As she is one of the apostles in this verse. Over and over again, and I don't have time to go through them, but there are a lot of references to this person, Paul, the author of 1 Timothy, affirming women in ministry and enjoying working alongside them. And if that's God's intent, if God's intent is for men and women to partner together to work as co-equals in ways that lead culture out of hierarchy and into harmony, how are we to understand passages like the one we read today? Ones that seem to restrict women at all times and in all cultures and in all situations, from having authority or teaching men. This is where I think historical context comes in pretty importantly. The letter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy was written to a church in the Greek city of Ephesus, which is part of the Roman Empire. And as we saw when we studied Philippians a couple weeks ago, Paul's singular goal for all churches is that they represent and share the true gospel of Christ with their neighbors. Like That's his overriding and chief concern. The church in Ephesus is excited about the news they have. They want to share the gospel. They're passionate. They want to share the good news about Jesus. But it seems like all that enthusiasm that they have is actually having the opposite effect. 
than what they want. You can almost imagine the Roman Empire seeing a bunch of spiritually excited people gathering in house churches. And in those house churches, they see an inversion of cultural gender roles. They see women speaking in these house churches out loud in public in a worship setting. I doubt that the Roman Empire is going to give them a gold star for their efforts. No, they're going to look at them and say, that's a threat. Like, that's different. Maybe that's even the seed of a revolution. So Paul's instructions to Timothy, this new pastor in Ephesus, are intended to help Timothy channel the church's excitement in a way that builds relational bridges with the community, rather than severing them. Paul wants the church to stay in the conversation, so to speak. That's why he prefaces this passage on women and men with the more general principle in verses 2 through 4. And he encourages them that to maintain credibility, they must all live lives peacefully, quietly, marked by godliness and dignity. That's the overarching principle before he gets into the specifics. Only after giving that principle does Paul move into the specifics for men and for women. In Ephesus, it seems, some of the women were speaking out of turn. Remember, I said, in that context, women aren't allowed to learn anything in a school setting. Entirely uneducated, formally. And in this letter, later, in 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul mentions the proliferation of irreverent, silly myths in their culture that they're ending up sharing and saying. You see, the deal is women still learned in society. They just didn't learn in formal school settings. Instead, they would learn as they were out about in the towns, in the marketplaces, as they spent time in the community. Women would hear these popular religious ideas floating around Ephesus, but they didn't have the spiritual training They didn't have the formal educational process to help them distinguish between what was fake news and what was truth. So they would get it jumbled up together. So maybe, possibly, the problem isn't that women were speaking, but the problem is what women were speaking. They were speaking before they had an opportunity to learn, to differentiate between the truth and the silly myths that were out there. In fact, as you read this passage, the only command, the only imperative in the whole verse is in verse 11. When when Paul says, women should learn quietly and submissively. The only command in this whole verse is women should learn. If you think about it, that's incredibly countercultural. Paul is commanding women to learn, to study God's word formally. This is something that ancient Rome would not allow women to do. This is something that Judaism would not allow women to do, but it is something that Jesus encouraged in women. And in fact, that principle is a good advice for everybody. Before you teach, it is a good idea to learn what you're about to preach or what you're about to teach. In fact, in that day and age when a rabbi took on a disciple, the disciples were required to learn in silence and submission before they were allowed to teach on their own. The very best students were the ones who learned well first, which is specifically what Paul commands women to do here, to learn. One last piece of cultural context. Paul is speaking specifically here about public worship, the corporate public worship. Apparently, women in the Ephesian church were trying to publicly seize power when they spoke in these ways that might look to an outsider like a threat to the social order of things. The evidence for this idea about women seizing power comes from the word that Paul uses for authority in verse 12. In 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul says authority, but the word he uses here is the only time he ever uses this word in the Holy Testament. There are other words for authority that he could use, but he uses a very specific word here, and it's a strong word. In the Greek, interpreters equate it with control, with domination, with assuming authority over by force. It even is a a word used to describe how somebody approaches murder. Paul, using this very rare specific word for authority, probably means something very specific about authority. He probably means a kind of abusive 
controlling, dominating kind of authority, the kind of authority that no one should ever have over anyone else. Taking all of these different contexts together, and there's a lot more that we can say about this passage. It was originally a twice as long sermon. I cut a ton of stuff out. I think it's unlikely that Paul is saying that at all times and in all cultures, women cannot teach men. Because that would contradict what he says in other letters about women having leadership in churches and speaking in churches. And what he says about all people being equal in Christ Jesus. Instead, it seems to me that Paul is addressing a specific problem in a specific social and historical context. How is he going to get this enthusiastic church to behave a little more peacefully and quietly, a little less dangerously, so that the larger community can hear their message about Jesus? Paul himself is committed to that principle in his own conduct. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, it says that he is committed to finding common ground with everyone, doing everything that he personally can so that he might be able to save some. If the goal is to spread the gospel... And if finding common ground is one of the strategies employed, then setting these kinds of ground rules for public worship in first century Ephesus makes a lot of sense to me. But perhaps finding common ground with our neighbors in culture today looks a little bit different. In fact, if our hope is to find common ground, then silencing or restricting the voices of half of our church might actually have the wrong effect. It might actually produce the kind of marginalization that Paul wants the Ephesian church to avoid. It would be strange, I think, and potentially offensive, if the only arena in the world where women were not allowed to speak, where they were told to stay silent, was in the house of God. So at High Rock, we view the subordination of women to men as contrary to God's design. I see it as the kind of dividing wall of hostility that Christ came to actually destroy. We as God's people are called to embody a new creation, to restore what was broken in the fall, to be a living embodiment of God's kingdom here on earth. With that said, I want to acknowledge that there are sincere, thoughtful Christians who disagree with this assessment of Scripture. There are sincere Christians who love Scripture, who believe that God created different roles for men and for women in the church. I have close friends who believe that. I have seminary professors who taught me who believe that. There are high rockers who I know and love who believe that. So if you count yourself among those people, please do not feel any less valued or part of our community. One of the things that I love and appreciate about our denomination is that we seek to be a community that recognizes but transcends debated theological differences. We are united by our common experience of coming alive in Christ, not by uniformity, on every contested matter of biblical interpretation. So I recognize and I respect the fact that faithful Christians disagree on how to understand this passage. With that said, I hope that after today you might look at these passages in a new light. That you might dig deeper, curiously. My own views on gender roles have changed pretty dramatically over time and only changed after a very long and careful and sincere assessment of what God revealed through Scripture. I'm grateful to be in this place today, though, because Pastor Bryn at High Rock North Shore is one of the most amazing preachers that I've heard in my whole life. She's one of the most brilliant communicators I've ever sat in the room with. I have sought her advice on everything, from being a better preacher myself, to how to officiate a wedding, to how to counsel somebody through troubled times. I've learned so much sitting under her leadership. So here at High Rock, you will see women doing everything that men do at our church. 
You will see women like Jordan and Susan leading our worship music team. You will see women like Amy and Katie serving communion. You'll see women like Christy Lynn and Bryn and Angie standing in this spot, preaching and teaching God's word from their heart. And if a man is preaching on any Sunday, we will deliberately make sure that a woman is reading scripture or presiding over the service. And that mentality doesn't just see, exist on Sunday mornings. It exists throughout the entirety of our organization. Our staff team consists of two men and two women. Our newly formed advisory council includes three men and three women together. At every level of authority, choices are made prayerfully and together, only after many voices are heard, because we each bring a perspective to the table. And that perspective is informed by our backgrounds, by our ethnicity, by our experiences, and yes, by our gender. Now, we, we still have like a, a long way to go as a church when it comes to raising and lifting women's voices. But we're committed to being that kind of place. A safe place for women to share their experiences. A safe place for women to exercise the gift that God's given them. And one of the reasons for that, personally, is that I want my boys, my three little boys, to grow up in a church where they see women doing all the things that men do. Where they see women doing everything God has called them to do. And it's not strange for them. So they're not 42 years old standing up in front of people saying, I never saw a woman preach a sermon in a church. And I want that for all the children here at High Rock, honestly. I'm going to close with two different words, one for men and one for women. First, a word to us men, who have, by virtue of our sex, traditionally held almost all of the power, both inside and outside the church. I'm willing to bet that none of us have ever been told that we have less to offer as Christians or that we are less valuable because we're males. Yet that is the line that our sisters have heard over and over again. We must actively work against that lie. As men, as Christians, let us thoughtfully encourage the gifts of women in our church. Let us find ways to privilege their voices above our own. Whether it's in a small group, in our relationships, in formal conversations, what can you men do to hold open a door so that a female can step forward and speak and be heard? So that you can listen and learn from them honest question like what can you do to make sure you create space and then lastly a word for the women if you have ever been part of a Christian community where you were told that your giftedness was limited because you were a woman if you have been dismissed or silenced or made to feel that God loves you any less because you are a woman I want to say that I'm sorry I'm sorry for that and if that is you, then we welcome the chance to hear your story, to pray with you, to discern how your gifts can be affirmed and used fully for the glory of God in this space. Because we need you. We need you. As we seek to create a culture where these doors are open, I hope that you step through them. If your gift is leading, then lead. If your gift is teaching, then teach. If it is serving, then serve. But we need you to be who God is to be exactly who God created you to be. And I know that can sometimes mean stepping into uncharted territory where you will face obstacles. Sometimes it means knocking and pushing against a very heavy door that has been set against you. And you will, I think, feel resistance as you step forward. And sometimes that resistance comes from the people that are closest to you. And maybe sometimes the resistance comes even from yourself because it is hard to believe that the things that you have heard your whole life 
about your role and your value might not be true. But be the person that God has created and called you to be. You are valuable, not in spite of the fact that you are a woman, but because you are a woman. And that is how God made you. You are a full image bearer of God, remade in Christ Jesus and empowered by the Spirit to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, whether it is preaching or prophesying or playing with the preschoolers. When we joined the High Rock Church Plants in Salem, Massachusetts in 2012, Pastor Aaron asked my wife Megan to be an overseer in that church right away. Megan and I looked at each other and we were like, can he do that? Like, can he ask her to be an overseer, the equivalent of an elder? Can the church have women overseers and still believe in scripture? So she and I prayed and debated together. And Megan said yes to that opportunity. And to this day, Pastor Aaron will tell you that it was the presence of women on the overseer team that helped that church survive a very difficult first year of existence. And Megan will tell you that it was the invitation to utilize the gifts that she didn't even realize that she had fully, that God had given her. It was that invitation that elevated and empowered her to a new view of her her potential in God's kingdom and church as a woman. Now, seven years after that moment, I believe a church can have women overseers precisely because we believe in Scripture. Precisely because that is what God has called and empowered and created women to be able to do. And that is our heart here at High Rock. Let's pray.